That's really all we have, isn't it? Our life. Pour out before Him. What other reason is there to live? Everything that you have, everything that you can obtain, whether it's degrees or businesses or resources or whatever, uh, fill in the blank. Um, It's only good for this life. You can use it in this life for the one that is to come, but that's, that's it. Um, and so truly, the only thing that, that will remain is what we've done for the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, that's what we do. We get up every morning and we say, Lord, here I am. Uh, I'm yours, a uh, living sacrifice, and I pray that you would use me today. And that's been my prayer all week, even for this, this moment. So open your Bibles, if you would. To the Gospel of Mark in the 11th chapter, Mark chapter 11, we're coming to, uh, coming close to the end. We are in the final week, the Passion Week as it is called in the Gospel of Mark, a, a shorter gospel than the others. You know Mark's famous uh, uh, phrase or word is immediately, it's a speedy gospel, it tells the story, it tells us from the very first verse that his purpose is to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And last week we saw Jesus present Himself as the Messianic King, a a blind man that He healed uh, who's named Bartimaeus in Jericho as Jesus begins to ascend up to Jerusalem, declares for the first time publicly that Jesus is the Son of David. He's the King. And then Jesus, in a very dramatic fashion, presents Himself as the Messiah. He does something that he's never done up to that point in his ministry. He has never been one for fanfare whenever there's a healing, whenever they try to make him king in Galilee. He rejects that. He says, no, because it wasn't his time. And now his time has come, and Jesus sets everything in motion by presenting himself as the king. The leaders, the rulers of the Pharisees knew exactly what he was doing. The people got very excited. The disciples got very excited And now this week, you're going to see Jesus as the king exercise kingly authority, authority over the temple. And yet, before he gets there, you have this strange little passage about a a fig tree. It's an interesting passage. It's the only destructive miracle in the Bible. Jesus typically gives eyes to see. He... He gives the ability to walk, whatever it might be. He cleanses lepers, but here he pronounces a curse on a tree, his creation. And as you see, we're not going to look at that passage this morning, but when the disciples come back by the next day, the the tree is withered. And we're going to see what all that means this morning. Following the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus rides right into the temple. He looks around And then he leaves without setting up the kingdom. And you think about that. The king comes, the people don't receive him, and then the kingdom doesn't come. And Luke says that Jesus, whenever he gets about halfway down the Kidron Valley, where he's about eye level with the temple, he's coming down the Mount of Olives, getting ready to cross up the other side, go into the eastern gate, he weeps over the city. And he pronounces this condemnation or this judgment. And he does it verbally. And Mark doesn't record those words. Luke says 
Jesus weeps over the city and says, These things have been hidden from your eyes because you do not recognize the time of your visitation. Mark does not record those words. He records something else. It's the cursing of a fig tree. And it's actually the same condemnation. He just shows it in an object lesson rather than, rather than verbally. And when Jesus rides into the temple, Mark tells us at the, at the, uh, in verse 11, He looks around and then He leaves. He surveys it. He inspects the temple as only God could do. He examines the religious system of the day. And as a result, he returns the following day and he attacks it. We call it the cleansing of the temple. But when Jesus is done in the courtyard, there's nothing clean. (laughs) There are tables everywhere. There are animals scattered. There's money all over the place. He actually attacks the temple, his own temple. He attacks the religious system of the day. And on the way, he uses this tree as an illustration of what's coming. And he does that for the disciples. And it's a shocking scene. Many anticipate the Messiah to come as king, but they don't expect him to do what he does, which is die. And they surely don't don't expect him to attack the temple, the center of worship established in the Old Testament, the center of worship of God's people. MacArthur said they expect him to come as king of Israel and to attack Rome. And yet he comes as the king of righteousness and attacks the temple. That would be a very shocking thing to see. A very shocking thing for, for someone to experience that, that was an Israelite. God attacks his own temple because of what's happening in it. And the fig tree is an illustration And the temple cleansing is a preview of what's coming, all because of the profane worship of the day. This is not the first time that God's done this. It's the first time Jesus has done this, in the sense that since He's come, but in the Old Testament, God has done this before. He did it with the first temple because of profane worship. After years of calling God's people to repentance, God sends Babylon to destroy the first temple. They level it, they plunder it, and they do it because, of, because Israel is apostate. Israel is corrupt. And so God uses Babylon to bring judgment. The people repent. The second temple is built. Herod expands that temple and that beautifies it in a, in a, in a significant way. And that's the temple that is, that's there today. And now after years of preaching by John the Baptist, by the Lord himself... Jesus condemns the corruption in the temple, and in 70 A.D. it's destroyed again by the Romans, who also plunder it just like Babylon. I mean, if you want to follow the story of Israel, you can follow the story of the temple. The temple is where God said that His presence would be. It's where He would meet people, not only the Israelites, but anyone. He would meet them on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is that place over the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holies of Holies, inside the Ark of the Covenant is the broken commandments, and then above it is the very presence of God, and the mercy seat is where the blood is sprinkled, all symbolizing what the Lord Jesus Christ does on the cross. The broken commandments of man, God's holiness and His presence cannot accept, and so God looks through the blood, the blood is placed on the mercy seat, and God then is able to grant Mercy. 
And the temple is the place where this happens. And the Israelites are the ones that have been given the promises, the covenants and, and the law. And they're to be a light unto the world, a light unto the Gentiles. And the story of the temple, as goes the temple, so goes the children of Israel. When they worship God, they experience joy. When, when they sin and they get corrupt, that ultimately influences the temple, and then God's access is, is removed. Right now, there is no temple. But there will be a temple in the future. And in the tribulation, the Bible says that there will be a temple. It's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist. And the final temple will be in the, in the millennium, Ezekiel tells us. And it's going to be pure, and it's going to be full of, of God's glory. God loves genuine worship. And God hates, He hates corrupt religion. In fact, the reason that the Lord Jesus comes is because God is seeking worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know that. And all through the Bible, you can see that God hates corrupt religion. He hates those who fleece the poor. Now, we are very reluctant to speak out against uh, name names or systems or otherwise, and I get that, okay? It's Galatians 6.1. You should consider yourself. You know you're a sinner and otherwise. But God has, does not have that problem. God hates those who fleece the poor. He hates the health, wealth, gospel. He hates what he sees whenever he turns on TBN and the other things where individuals are sowing seeds and they're robbing the poor and proclaiming that you can be right with God if you give money. God hates hypocrisy. He hates self-exalting men and women that claim to be his spokesmen. And yet they do so for pride or to pad their own pockets. And he loathes systems that are works-based, and he shows that here. And it's nothing new that human beings have prostituted the worship of God for personal gain. It's been happening since the Tower of Babel. And yet we need to understand that God is never, never, never indifferent about it. Does God have an opinion about your worship this morning? He does. What does God see when He looks at the church in the world today? Be even more specific, what does He think when He looks at our church? And even more specific, what does He see whenever He looks in your heart this morning? I hope it's worship that's truthful and, and spiritual. But Jesus here, through the Gospel of Mark, gives us two responses that the Lord has to the perversion of worship. The Lord's response to the perversion of worship. And it, it, it breaks down very, uh, very simply. In verses 12 through 14, there is a deliberate object lesson. And that's from the fruitless tree. And then in verses 15 through 19... There's a divine condemnation that comes from the attack on, on the temple in verses 15 through 19. There's an illustration, the cursing of a fig tree, and then there's an example or an act, which is the condemnation of what's happening in the temple. 
And all of them teach us, both of those, I should say, teach us the Lord's response to the perversion of worship. Let's look at the first one. There's a deliberate object lesson from the fruitless tree. Look, if you would, at verse 12. It says, on the next day, this is after Jesus comes into uh, entering Jerusalem, He comes into the temple, He surveys the temple, He examines it, He looks around in verse 11. It says that everything... He, he's, he's, he's surveying, he's, he's examining, it's under the divine x-ray. And then he leaves. He leaves for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And on the next day, verse 12 says, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. Now this is a, uh, a Monday of the week. It's the day after Jesus presents himself as the king, and the disciples are still with him, the text tells us. And it also says something interesting. He is, he's hungry. Now, one of the, this is one of the passages in the Bible that you can clearly see the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. He hungers because he hasn't had any breakfast. It's, um, and yet he's hungry on the way to attack the temple as God. He's likely, likely got up early to be strengthened by a time with the Father. That's his humanity. He needs strength. He spends time with the Father. I mean, this is a Passion Week. He's going to die at the end of, of this week. And he gets up early to be strengthened because, as God, he knows this week he's going to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. In verse 13, it tells us what... What he sees, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf. And he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Now, fig trees are everywhere in Israel. And this one's probably not in a, uh, 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 somebody's vineyard. It's probably alongside of the road. When I was growing up, that's what we used to do. We didn't have blackberry uh, patches or raspberry patches. We would walk the roads, and, and they would be growing uh, all along the roads. And you would pick them. And, and here, all, all through Israel, there are fig trees. And Jesus is hungry, and he sees one at a distance. And he sees it, that it has leaves on it. And so he hopes to find figs. But when he gets there, it's barren. And Mark specifically tells us something about this tree that's, that's, that, that's caused individuals to some, some consternation. Look at what it says in verse 13. Seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went on to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. But when he came, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And that's the problem. It was not the season for figs. This is a passage that's used by Bible critics as a clear example of error, or at worst, it shows Jesus has a very wicked character. I mean, they would like to present Jesus as hangry. <laughs> He's hungry, and he gets angry. And he goes and he thinks, he doesn't have enough omniscience to know what's on this tree, and so he sees leaves on it. And he goes hoping that he'll find something because he, he's, he's obviously not God. He doesn't, he doesn't know what he'll find. And when he finds nothing on it, he gets angry and so he curses the tree. That's the way they would like to present this passage. Jesus is obviously not God because he doesn't know the tree lacks figs and he throws a temper tantrum when he finds it's barren. That's what they say. One atheist said, 
Because he doesn't get his way, Jesus kills the tree in retaliation. It is very ridiculous. It's exactly right. It seems illogical to them. And yet Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. The answer is very simple to explain. See, whenever you start with a presupposition that there is no God and the Bible is not true, you always come to a wrong conclusion. You'll never rightly interpret the Bible to begin with. The answer is very simple to explain. Mark clearly says this tree is not in season, meaning it's not in the full harvest. It's not in the harvest. It's not in the fig harvest. However, in the spring, figs bear what are called breva, or first fruit crops. And they come from last year's shoots. It's the figs that come from the buds of the, of the wood that survived the winter from the previous season. And they grow under the leaves, so you have to search for them. And if there aren't any present at the first crop, then that's not a good sign that the tree is going to bear fruit in season. This is not Jesus getting angry or not knowing. This is Jesus being omniscient and knowing exactly what he would find on the tree. And it is a perfect object lesson for Israel. That's why Mark says Jesus went to see if perhaps he would find some. Jesus sees the leaves and thinks perhaps that there's some spring fruit there. He takes the disciples along and he inspects the tree. He looks under the leaves. And what he finds is a barren tree. And so he curses it. Because a tree that doesn't have breva on it is not going to bear fruit in the fig season. And so look at what Jesus says in verse 14. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. This is the only destructive miracle in the Bible. He curses a tree and he withers it. But I don't want you to miss what happens here. He said to it, he speaks to the tree. Now, he's God, okay? So he can talk to his creation and his creation obeys, but that's not what's happening here. Trees don't hear, and Jesus speaks directly to the tree. But look at who does hear at the end of verse 14. And his disciples were listening. It's exactly why Jesus does this. His disciples were listening. Jesus personifies the tree as an object lesson for the disciples. And Mark says they heard it loud and, cr- loud and clear. The tree and the curse are a, a deliberate object lesson. They're headed to the temple. Jesus is going to condemn the temple after he's already inspected the leaves. He's already looked under the leaves of the temple. He hopes to find some first fruits there because it's not harvest season and Jesus finds none. And so he's going to curse the temple. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. They don't know what Jesus is going to do. They're on the way to the temple. You remember the disciples are part of the Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you imagine the disciples? You come down the hill and this is the king and you get the donkey and he goes into the temple and he comes up into the the area. He presents himself and Jesus looks around and he says, okay, guys, it's late. It's time to leave. Leave? What do you mean? It's, It's the kingdom. They don't know what he's going to do. They're probably shocked by what happens whenever he comes back this day. And so Jesus is preparing them. It's a preparatory illustration. 
Because the temple looks nice on the outside, but the worship inside was corrupt. It had religious leaves, but it had no fruit. And it's not the time for the full harvest that's coming in the millennial kingdom, but there should be a first fruit crop in Jesus' day from last year's crop being the old covenant. There should be some fruit in Israel. And what he finds is nothing but leaves in this corrupt system. And because of that, there's going to be no fruit whenever the harvest comes. So he curses the tree and he curses the temple. And that's all that religion is. It's all leaves, but no fruit. Many have religious greenery. They look very good on the outside, but they have no produce. They have no fruit. And if you have no fruit in your life, then you need to check to see whether you've been truly saved. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, There will be people in the world having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They have an appearance. The temple had an appearance. People have an appearance. You may have an appearance this morning. There are things that other people see, but there are things that God knows. The things that God knows... 2 Timothy chapter 3 says these individuals are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They use their apparent knowledge and wisdom to sound learned, but they may remain truthless. They remain truthless, and because they remain truthless, they remain fruitless. Did you know that if you go back in the Gospel of Mark, I just shared this with somebody this past week, Go back in the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember in the early stages of Jesus' ministry, whenever it's just Jesus and the disciples in Galilee, and they can't understand why there's there's not more converts? I mean, here's the Messiah. He's preaching. He's doing all these wonderful things. And it's just Jesus and the Messiah? It's just Jesus and the twelve disciples? Just a, just a, a small band? You remember what Jesus does to explain to them how this is going to work? Explain evangelism? He, he teaches them the parable of the soils. Right? And, and he, he, just, he says there's nothing wrong with the gospel. There's nothing wrong with the sower. The problem is the soils. Do you remember that there are two soils that Jesus describes there? There's the good soil, the good ground, that receives the seed and bears lots of fruit. And then there's the soil also, though, that receives the seed and withers away. There's no roots that go down. Do you realize that a false profession and a real profession look the same whenever they begin. They're individuals that receive the gospel. It looks like something comes up. They rejoice. They, they, they embrace. They, they may even look like they come under conviction. And yet over a period of time, they fall away. And yet it's the good ground that receives the seed. It grows up and yet it continues and bears much fruit. And Jesus says you'll know a tree by its, by its fruit. And here, it's all leaves and no fruit. 
And you say, but I thought Jesus came to save. And I mean, these are the Jews. This is His temple. Where's the grace? Well, the grace is all over the place. You know, this is actually the second time that Jesus has attacked the temple. This is also the second time that He uses a fig tree as an illustration. In Luke chapter 13, verse 6, Jesus tells the parable of a fig tree. Here, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an object lesson. There's a real tree. There he tells a story of a tree in Luke 13. Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree. He says a vineyard owner comes looking for fruit on the fig tree and he finds none. He tells the gardener that for three years he's come looking for fruit and he's found none. So he tells the gardener to cut it down. And the gardener asks for more time to fertilize it. Don't, let's not cut it down yet. I know you've been coming for three years and you found no fruit on it. Let's not cut it down. Let's fertilize it and see if it'll bear fruit. And so the landowner grants that, and yet he warns, if there is no fruit, we're going to cut it down. Now put these two scenes together. Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and three years later, he cleanses it again. And so here is God who comes on the scene after hundreds of years and He sends the prophet John who calls him to repentance. What did John preach? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus comes to the temple at the beginning of His ministry. He finds no fruit and He comes for three years and He finds no fruit and He finds no fruit and He makes a declaration about the temple and their worship and He gives them three years to repent. During that time, he's fertilizing it. He's preaching the gospel. He's doing signs of the Messiah. He's raising people from the dead. He's doing all those things. Never before has such a fertilizer or stimulant come to Israel. God, a very God Himself, has come and shared the message personally. And after three years, He returns and presents Himself as the Messiah, according to Zechariah. And they don't receive it, and the tree still has no fruit. Still has no fruit. And so he says, cut it down. And that's why he curses the temple. It's a judgment. And as a Christian, you should listen very carefully to this passage. Because the Bible says that you are a wild olive branch grafted in. And if God would bring this kind of, of, of judgment, if He would take such profane worship that seriously upon His covenant people, can you imagine what He'll do? To us. And that's why the Bible says judgment must begin in the household of God. Long before you begin to wag your finger at somebody else outside of the church, you need to look inside the church. And long before you begin to look at others inside the church, you need to look inside your own heart, right? And you think of all the times that God has called you to repent when you've been bearing no fruit. And maybe He's even doing that this morning. And He's given you everything you need to grow. He's fertilized you. He's given you the Word. He's given you a good church. He's a good family. Whatever it might be, He's fertilizing your faith, but there's still no fruit. If you're not any different today than you were three years ago, there's a problem. A year ago. Five years ago. I told you the story about going back to the church I was saved in, and, and there's a comfort in seeing people again that you haven't seen for a long time. And, you know, what do you normally... What, what's a compliment when you see somebody? 
and you haven't seen them for a long time. Well, you haven't changed a bit, right? You haven't changed a bit. And we say that's a good thing. It's a bad thing whenever you're talking about spiritual things, right? I go back ten years later, and I see people that haven't changed a bit spiritually. If you haven't changed a bit spiritually, there's a problem. And if there's still no fruit, at some point there's going to come a curse. And if there's never been any fruit, you'll be cut down. And so He pleads with you again even this morning. Well, let's look at the second one here. There's a divine condemnation from the attack on the, on the temple. If you would, at verses 15... It says, Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit any of them to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to say to them, he quotes two passages here, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer, for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves or a robber's den. So he evaluates the situation. He leaves, goes to Bethany, spends Monday night there. He comes into the back into Jerusalem, into the temple. And however, this time he doesn't just look around and he doesn't come on a colt. He enters the temple and he begins to drive out those who were selling. He turns over the tables releases the animals, and he forbids merchandise from taking a shortcut across the, the court of the Gentiles. There's different gates, and they're using the, the temple courtyard as a pass-through. And there's three ways that, that the system is corrupt. If you, if, you want a, if you want a fuller understanding of this, I would encourage you to go get the, uh, the message that, where we, we broke all of it down. But there's, let me just... just for sake of time, tell you three ways that that the system that is going on here is is, is corrupted. There's the the sale of animals. The markets were where you could buy a certified, clean, sacrificial animal. You've seen these guys on TV that want to sell you water from the uh, from the Jordan River. Well, this is the first kosher racket. You can't bring your 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 perfect animal from, you don't want to tote it all the way from Galilee, and so some people did, and when you come there, you could buy one, and it was usually four to five times what you could buy it at home, and if you brought your own, then they would, they would, they would say it's not clean, and therefore you'd have to buy one from them at four to five times. And oh, by the way, they'll buy the one that wasn't clean, but they would buy that for a much cheaper price because, you know, it's an unclean animal. And then they would turn around and put it in the pen and sell it to the next guy that came along as a clean animal. There were four certified markets to buy sacrificial animals located on the Mount of Olives. And the Sanhedrin controlled all of that. But Caiaphas doesn't get a cut. So he starts a system right here in the temple courtyard. And there were disputes between the two markets on a regular basis. You can read about that. So the animals, there was also the conversion rates. You, you had to pay a shekel for the sanctuary. And so they jacked up the conversion rates. 
sometimes 25% or more. And then there were the tax tables. They, they were permitted to set up tables to do all of this five days before the first of Nisan, and they had to take them down by the first of Nisan. It's for Passover, for the sacrificial system, and they would extend the tables longer so they could continue to fleece the people. And it took advantage of all of it. Overcharged for the animals, added exchange added money to the exchange rates and gained the timing of the tables. They were corrupt, they were abusing the poor, they were defiling the temple, and the Lord condemns the whole thing. And so he quotes these two verses. Isaiah 56, 7, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And notice the last few words, for all nations, for the Gentiles. He prophetically declares what God's temple should be. And then exposes what it's become. He says it's become a den of thieves. And that's from Jeremiah 7.11. It was part of the sermon that Jeremiah preached about Israel's hypocrisy. Israel was called to be a witness of the true God in a world of idolatry. They were to furnish penmen and preservers of the divine word of God. And they were to draw the nations to the Lord by their worship. And they were not doing any of that. And if all of those other things that were described weren't bad enough, you know where this bazaar, this, this system was set up? It was set up in the courtyard of the Gentiles. It's the place in the system that God set apart for proselytes, people who weren't full converts. And so they set up the, this corrupt sales system in the place that God had set aside for evangelism. And that's where their side business was coming. And one of the reasons the judgment comes is because they had the attitude of Jonah. They were supposed to witness and they refused to witness. And so God removes their light and the church becomes the witness in the latter days. What does the Great Commission say? You will be my what? Witnesses. And Jesus doesn't just speak, he acts. Luke says he drives them out. And there are two things that you can do to make God your enemy. You can profane his worship, and you can abuse the innocent. You can tell whose side you're on by how you respond to the truth. (laughs) So was this condemnation just? Did they get it? Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard this. And they fell on their faces in sackcloth and ashes and repented and said, God, you are the Lord and we have been wrong. There's no fruit. We repent of no fruit. Is that what it says? And they began seeking how to destroy him. When you don't want to hear the truth, you know what you do? You walk away from the truth. You get away from the truth. You tear down the people that are speaking the truth to you. You avoid the truth. That's exactly what they were doing here. And it says, for they were afraid of him. They were seeking how to do that because they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. They didn't get it. Jesus' act was seen by the people as prophetic. He had zeal for God. And so the leaders feared mob violence. So they set in motion what will come at the end of the week. The cross. What Jesus does here is both real and it's also symbolic. Because in a few days, 
they'll go through with their plans and crucify the Lord as well. And the curse that he starts here continues on Friday. This is not the only time in the Passion Week that God does something to the temple, is it? Where he pronounces a curse, where he gives his indication of how he feels about the worship that's going on in Judaism in that day. He cleanses the temple here, but on Friday, the veil inside the temple, the most holy place, is ripped from top to bottom. How do you rip a veil from top to bottom? Well, God does it, signifying the way to God is now open, and it's not through the temple or the corrupt priests, but it's through Christ alone. And the final act of cursing comes in 70 A.D., and the very Gentiles that they're supposed to be a witness to are used by God as a judgment. And so the Romans come in, they don't leave a, they don't leave a stone on top of one another, and they destroy the temple. It's a shocking passage, it really is. But you know what I find the, uh, is the scariest part of this whole passage? They continued their worship for another 40 years. This is 30, 33 A.D. Jesus does this at the beginning of the ministry, gives three years for them to repent. They don't. He comes back. He cleanses it again. On Friday, God rips open the temple... And then for 40 years, the apostates continue their profane worship and the temple operates day in and day out. The Day of Atonement, day, year in and year out after the Lamb of God has already... And they have no idea what they're doing. They thought they were okay. And they'll continue the worship in the very place that they condemn the Lord of glory Himself. Talk about irony. And the judgment was already on the way. You should never think because God doesn't bring immediate consequence or immediate judgment in your life that somehow by the fact that He doesn't just immediately do something that He's indifferent to your sin. And you also should not think that He's not going to deal with your sin. He calls us to repent. He warns us over and over. He invites us to find forgiveness. But if sin is not repented of, you may go right along thinking everything is okay until the judgment arrives. Isn't that what Galatians says? God is not mocked. But the beautiful thing about this passage being preached to you and to me this morning is there's still time, isn't there? Judgment must begin in the household of God and then in the world, and it's coming. But right now, the Lord invites anyone who will repent and believe to find cleansing. What do you think? This is hypothetical. What do you think would have happened if those priests would have done that very thing? They would have repented, and they would have asked the Lord's forgiveness, and they would have turned. Well, you can see exactly what God's done in the Old Testament over and over. He relents. Pours out His grace. And that's exactly what He'll do for you and for me this morning. Won't you bow your heads? Verse 19 says, When evening came, they 
would go out of the city. And it says he began to teach them. When he quotes those two verses, Jesus doesn't just quote these verses, he teaches them. Teaches them all day. The purpose of the temple. And points out how they failed to do exactly what God's commanded them to do. And he does the same thing in our lives, doesn't he? Doesn't just quote a verse. Doesn't just come to us once. He's patient. He's gracious. He teaches us over and over. And then he lays it before us to decide what we'll do with it. So what has he said to you this morning? Maybe he's given you a burden for others. Maybe he's put his finger on something in your heart. Whatever it is, he's giving you an opportunity before the judgment comes. Turn to him. He's kind. He's merciful. It's also a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God if you refuse. Father, we do thank you for your truth and um, I've been humbled this week uh, by many things, but this passage is one of them. And Lord, I long for my worship to be pure. I long for my heart to be pure. And I know of nothing that's there, but Paul says even that doesn't acquit me. So I pray that you would look within my own heart And even before these people, if there's anything there, I pray that you would be gracious and help me to repent so I might receive your forgiveness. And I pray the same thing for them. Father, if there's someone here who's never trusted in Christ as salvation, they have no hope, there is no worship, would you give them a new heart? As they come and as they repent and as they believe, Would you wash them clean? Would you fill them with your joy? Would you take them from an enemy and make them a child? We love you, Lord. We thank you that you're so kind to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. There's going to be a prayer room at the very end of the service. We're going to sing in response. And I'm going to invite those who are going to come. We're going to end the service with a a parent family dedication and so if you're going to participate in that I want you to just come and um, just stand up here around front and after we sing a verse then we'll invite all of you to sit down you can come now let's sing speak oh Lord as we
Well, we have two families that are coming this morning. Otto, William, Hager. I like that William part, William Bryan. Otto, William. Parents, Mark and Carmelie Hager. Grandparents, Mark and Cindy. Aunt and Uncle, Brett and Rebecca. And uh, Uncle, Aunt and Cousin, Eddie and Jana. Uh, And the rest of the clan. You guys look great this morning. Thank you for coming. You guys can be seated. I'm sorry. I told you I'd let you do that and had you stand up. And then we have Eden, uh, Aubrey, Henry. Hi. There we go. Yeah, that won't last long. Um, uh, parents Mark and Bethany Henry, grandparents Gloria, uh, Henry, Aubrey, and Leanne Wood. And then there's you, too. I like you. You know that, right? Amen. And you, too. Grady. All right. Um, there's a passage in Psalm 27. This does not save the children. They have to make a profession of faith on their own. And so there's not any magic in in what, is, what we're saying, what we're praying. And that's why we call it a parent dedication. Because what these parents are saying is they know there's a God and they know there's a right and a wrong in the gospel and sin in the world and they desire, they desire that these little ones would come to know Jesus Christ and they desire to live before these little ones as a testimony to Jesus Christ. And we do that before the church because what they're also saying is they need you. They need the church of Jesus Christ. And some of you are going to teach them in Sunday school. Some of you are going to pray for them. Um, some of you are going to encourage them. And, um, and so this is, a, this is a beautiful thing that, uh, that they're doing. And so we're going to pray for them as a church. And we're going to pray for these, these little ones. And Psalm 127 really echoes why we do this. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain to rise up early and to retire late, eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. The passage says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. They build it. And yet it says you'll labor. And I know parenting is is labor. And so you'll put forth your efforts unto the Lord. But without God, it's impossible, isn't it? And so you labor and you do what He's called you to do and what He's asked you to do. And then the Lord will bless it. And that's what we're here to do. So, um, they're a gift. And they're a precious, precious gift from the Lord. So let's pray together as a, as a church for these families. Father, we come before You and we lift up um, little Otto and Eden and um, both of these families. And we pray that You would grant them what they cannot do on their own. Lord, that you would help them to um, be a clear witness of the gospel. Um, that you would help them to bring these little ones to church where they can hear the word. And, and it's the way that you have uh, created for us to, to grow 
Um, we pray that you'll preserve their marriages and their families. We pray that you would, you would guard their hearts. We pray, Lord, that these little ones would come to faith in Christ uh, sooner rather than later. Um, we don't control hearts. They have wills of their own. And yet we long um, that they would come to know the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord, before they taste very much fruit uh, of the sin that can come in life. Someone who wasn't saved until I was 24, Lord, I pray that they would be saved the minute that they can understand the gospel and the minute that they can repent and believe. Lord, please do not let them taste the sinful fruit that I tasted in my life. But I ask, Lord that You would allow them to taste the grace that I've tasted and everyone else in here that's trusted You have uh, has, and, and I pray that, that that would be soon. Lord, bless these families. Bless this church. Help us to be a good church um, and give a good example of what it looks like to love You and to worship You. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.